We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to start reading uh, Matthew 16, verse 13, is where I'm going to start reading today. Now, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Let's just pause for a second. I want you to see something about Jesus in this text. There, the, the response of the disciples is very telling. It actually reveals something about who Jesus is to us. They see him as a prophet, a John the Baptist, an Elijah, a Jeremiah, And Matthew is the only gospel who actually ties Jesus to the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, in particular, is a really interesting prophet. He railed against the unfaithfulness of Israel. He preached for repentance. He was rejected by the people that he spoke to. Jeremiah has been called the prophet of woe and destruction. (laughs) Woe, oh, sorry, a woe, persecution, and desolation. And Jeremiah, who predicted the fall of Jerusalem, which also, interestingly, so does Jesus. It's interesting, both Jeremiah and Jesus warn of the divine judgment that comes from rejecting their prophetic message. I think that this should be for us a reminder of who Jesus is and what Jesus was like. Sometimes, even in the last couple chapters, we can read about Jesus being this healer and this compassionate, merciful person, but let's not forget that Jesus had an edge. He was like John the Baptist, Elijah. Jeremiah, a prophet of woe and persecution and desolation. Jesus spoke the truth unflinchingly to those who ran to the temple, thinking that God would protect them from their injustice. Jesus vocally opposed those who had turned their back on God. Jesus called out those who were living in systems of injustice, who covered their wickedness with righteous language, who who were robbing and exploiting the most vulnerable. Jesus was a powerful voice condemning the religious and political leaders for mismanaging God's people, and he called everyone to return to the faithful love of God expressed in true worship and changed thinking and actions. Jesus was a prophet. Prophets have edge. They're not just lovely, meek, and mild, me and my best buddy, Jesus. Jesus also was a prophet who called people back to follow God. And then he taught them how to do it. Continuing in Matthew, Jesus asks the disciples, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter, and I'll build my church on this rock. The gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. 
I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Anything you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Anything you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Christ or the king. So here, Peter is the very first disciple to call Jesus king, the Christ. This is a great moment, and Jesus praises him for it. He becomes the rock. It's also worth noting here that Jesus is making a direct reference to the church. The church, the, the word is ecclesia. It means most literally the called out, the called and assembled people of God, the called congregation of God's people. That's why when we gather every week, we begin with, we have been called from scattered lives to meet with God. That is at its most direct what it means to be the church, to be the called people of God gathered together. We see that Jesus is beginning to show his disciples that he is the king, he is the Christ, and that he is going to establish a new community. It will be a community marked by humility, forgiveness, and service. This community, Jesus says, the gates of the underworld or of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. I sometimes fall into this a little bit myself, uh, this idea that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in heaven, it means that we have to bring the kingdom, that it's our job to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think sometimes we lean that way just because it's a reaction to a Christianity that has spoken of getting out of <laughs> this earth, and, and it's about getting souls into heaven and not about the work of the kingdom here on this earth, but, but we have to remember that we don't make this kingdom. We don't establish it. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom. Jesus is the one who establishes his kingdom on earth. Jesus offers us this incredible vision of the called out people of God, and he says that the powers of death and hell cannot overcome the church, that Jesus is establishing a new age, a new community, a new people who do not need to fear the powers of death or the underworld, because Jesus himself will destroy death. Jesus, by his own death and resurrection, will release all of those who death held enslaved. Jesus will destroy death by death. He will set the captives free. Jesus will win the victory over all that holds humans enslaved and in bondage. The sin, the death, the devil are defeated. Jesus is the strong man who has bound up the rich man and plundered all that he has stolen. Jesus is the victor, the ruler, the king. The kingdom of heaven is here, but we don't bring it. We don't make it. That's the work of the Messiah, of the king. We simply participate in it. We live out the reality of what Jesus has brought and what Jesus is bringing and doing. And now, with his disciples finally starting to see this and understand there's another turning point in the ministry of Jesus. We read in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the legal experts. That he had to be killed and raised on the third day. 
Then Peter took hold of Jesus, and he's scolding him and began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But he turned to Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. It's amazing how quickly the rock becomes a stumbling block, isn't it? Peter may understand that Jesus is the king, but he still has no idea what it means to be that kind of king. N.T. Wright's translation of this passage is really interesting. He says, he put it this way, Peter took him and began to tell him off. That's the last thing God would want, master. He said, that's never, ever going to happen to you. So what is Peter doing? What does Peter think? How can he think that he can tell Jesus this? Well, Peter was just told that everything you fasten here on earth will be fastened in heaven. Peter is trying to fasten Jesus here. He's trying to do exactly what Jesus told him he had authority to do. Peter is binding on earth what is bound in heaven. He is calling on God to have mercy on Jesus. Another commentator put it this way. Peter is saying, our merciful God won't let this happen to you, and neither will I. But Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You're a stone that could make me stumble. You're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. This temptation is back for Jesus to use position and privilege to meet his own needs. The temptation to avoid suffering, to receive protection, to use his power to be king over all of the world. And so Jesus must reject this temptation once again. And Peter, the stone, could make Jesus trip. He must get back in line. Jesus' words to Peter here can mean either get behind me or follow me. Get back in line and follow me, Peter. And then we read this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Observation number one. The word here for all means all. No one who follows Jesus can avoid the path of suffering. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said that from its very beginning, the church has taken offense at the suffering of Christ. Discipleship of Jesus is not a spectator sport. Rather, again, in the words of Bonhoeffer, whenever Christ calls, his call leads us to death. Whenever Christ calls, his call leads us to death. God is a God of love, but love has a cost. <laughs> we all know that. The simplest way I've been thinking about that is just our family is learning again the cost of love. To open our home to a foster child is to give love to a child, but it has a cost to our family. It shapes what we can do, what we can say yes to, the places we can go, the things we can do what our holidays can look like. It costs our kids the energy and attention of their parents. It costs Nikki and I sleep and energy and patience. <laughs> but we take on the pain, the cost, 
because we believe that the call of the gospel is to be like Jesus, to follow in the pattern of Jesus' self-giving love, a cross-shaped love. We give of ourselves, we give of our family, our children give as well, because we want to be like Jesus. All of us are called to say no to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. A second observation. The way of the cross-shaped love and discipleship leaves scars. Jesus, when he was resurrected, was able to show the wounds of his cross to his disciples. They could see them. They could touch them. N.T. Wright has said, the church is the body of Christ, but we forget that the body of Christ has nail scars. I was struck by this idea. I was listening to a sermon by Megan Larissa Good this week, and the challenge that she gave, and I, I have been wrestling with the really hard question that we must ask ourselves individually and corporately. Where do our lives have the marks of the cross? Because if we can't point to any scars, it means that we are fans of Jesus, not followers of Jesus. All who follow Jesus will have scars. All who want to come after Christ must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. If we don't have marks of the cross, we are fans, not followers. We can live our whole life saying good things about how we love Jesus, but at the end of the day, it's the scars that show the truth. Love is costly. Loving your enemy is a risk. Loving people who are unlovable is hard precisely because they are unlovable. Giving your time, your money, resisting temptation, saying no to something you want because it's not good for other people, these things have a cost, and they leave scars on us. Now, this doesn't mean that we're called to seek out suffering. This doesn't mean that we allow others to abuse us in a sense that, well, I'm carrying my cross. That's not what I'm saying. We don't need to seek out suffering. There's enough of that going around. We don't have to look for it. What I think it means, though, is that as we follow the way of Jesus, as we seek to alleviate the suffering and tend to the broken and the wounded, the oppressed, the needy, the lost, the broken, we will find that suffering tends to find those who are following Jesus on that path. So Anna Case Winters, in her commentary on Matthew, says this. Jesus reminds his followers again, as in 10 verse 39, that those who save their life lose it. There is a sense in which the self-protective impulse, a life controlled by fear of suffering and death, is a life already lost. Fear of death translates into a kind of fear of life, a constrained and cautious way of living that is not living at all. To lose one's life in following Jesus in the subversive way of the cross is ironically defined life. Loved this line. A life controlled by fear of suffering and death is already a life lost. 
Instead, the invitation of Jesus is to follow him in the way of self-giving love. And we do not have to fear the scars, the death, the shame, because Christ has established his church, his kingdom, and the gates of hell cannot overcome. Last week, we were reminded that to repent means to change the way you think, to see that Jesus is here. Well, again, this week, the invitation is to repent. To repent of a way of thinking that is controlled by the fear of suffering, the fear of death, the fear of hurt. Instead, to accept Jesus' invitation to the way of life that leads through a self-giving love to all those who need it. And yes, there are going to be pain. There will be scars. But the kingdom is here. Jesus is establishing his kingdom, and we are invited to live into that reality, to invite others to come and find life and freedom and rest and healing and deliverance in Jesus. And so I want to take this moment this morning to encourage us all to be disciples, not fans, and to risk and love as Jesus loved. Amen.